All right. Open your Bible to that passage, please, or navigate on your device, John chapter 5. The topic, out of multitudes of sick people at the pool of Bethesda seeking healing, Jesus singles out one man who has been infirm for 38 years. The title of our message, 38 Special. <laughs> Father, this morning we uh, believe what you've told us in your word that you are here among your saints. And we pray, Lord, that you would, uh, from this word and from the word of God, generally speak to our hearts, bringing us comfort and encouragement, strengthening us, Lord, for days ahead. Exhort us, Lord, reprove us if necessary. Do all that is necessary, Lord, for us to grow in our walk with you, to understand your grace and be children of your mercy. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. How many times have you heard there are no stupid questions? There most certainly are. Lawyers ask stupid questions to witnesses often. Here are five that are on the record. These are actual recorded court records from lawyers talking to uh, witnesses. Doctor, how many of your autopsies have you performed on dead people? Any suggestions as to what prevented this from being a murder trial instead of an attempted murder trial? Were you alone or by yourself? How far apart were the vehicles at the time of the collision? My favorite. Now, doctor, isn't it true that when a person dies in his sleep, he doesn't know about it until the next morning? Asking an infirm man who was waiting by a healing pool. Are you ready now? <laughs> Do you want to be made well? That sounds like a stupid question. It can't be, however, because it was Jesus who asked it. Jesus told him to do something that was impossible. Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Jesus is always telling us to do things that are impossible. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you are commanded to do the impossible made possible. And number two, you are capable of doing the impossible made possible. Let's take a look at Jesus commanding us to do impossible things in verses one through eight. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Children, Obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Three things that are impossible to do on our own, and we haven't even finished breakfast. Nobody's left the house yet. C.S. Lewis answering whether the Christian life was hard or easy writes, It is hard as death in the beginning, and then as Jesus' life begins to work within us and transform us, it is relatively easy because he does the work of transforming us. He lives within us and helps us do impossible things. Another quote I came across that's more direct, Christian life is not hard, it is impossible. We can no more live the impossible Christian life on our own than we can get to heaven on our own. And so we pick up this story uh, where we're going to learn about the impossible made possible in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. John doesn't mention which feast, 
It's one of many unanswered questions that scholars have in this encounter. Don't get sidetracked trying to figure out things that can't be figured out. Concentrate on what is revealed. Uh, it's interesting to, to do this. If you read commentaries, which I, I trust that you do, or I re recommend you do, the commentator will say, we don't know what feast this was, and there's no way of finding out, but I think it was this. And then they give reasons, and it'll 10 pages later, you still don't know what feast it is because the Bible doesn't tell you. And so just, the Bible doesn't tell you everything you might want to know. It tells you everything you need to know. And so it's just setting the scene. Jesus went up for a feast, and this is what was going to occur. Verse 2, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches or porticos. The sheep gate was the entrance for sheep entering into the temple compound from the market in order to be sacrificed. The pool had several names. We'll stick with Bethesda. One source writes, archaeologists located the pool, excavated it, and found that it was more than 300 feet long, almost the length of two Olympic-sized swimming pools. A series of columns ran along each side and along a partition in the middle, which explains the mention of five porches or porticos. Stairs were built in the corners of the pool. So that's the setting. Outside of Jerusalem in this structure, uh, sort of a semi-indoor pool would have been a great holiday inn, uh, you know, one of the first indoor pools, but they found it. They've, you can visit this pool today. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. Beggars we encountered on short-term mission trips still haunt my memories. Uh, I almost tripped many times over beggars that were laying on cardboard mats looking for uh, handouts. And there was one guy in particular who I almost stepped on. He was walking along on his hands because he didn't have any legs at all. And, uh, you know, parts of the world, many parts of the world are still like this. But that's the scene here. It's not a, a sterilized scene. It's a, it's a very, it's very, I want to use the word carefully, but it's an ugly scene with the worst possible cases uh, that you can imagine beggars uh, waiting to be healed, hoping to be healed. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever de uh, disease he had. I read an article this week titled, Who Took Verse 4 Out of My Bible? And I was noticing as the, we had the reading this morning, uh, this wasn't in it. There is scholarly disagreement about whether the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4 are genuine inspired word of God or were added later for clarification. So where it says they were waiting for the moving of the water and whoever stepped in it first uh, was made well of whatever diseases, scholars argue about that. has to do with manuscripts that we have and which of them are considered the best or the earliest by translators. Now in verse 7, we'll see the infirm man does mention this stirring of the water. That much is true with or without the omitted words. At issue is who stirred the water or how it was stirred and if the healings were genuine. And so some translators seeing th these words assume they might be additions by a copyist because they just don't like the idea of an angel visiting the water and stirring it and somebody actually getting healed. Uh, but, uh, you know, so 
the jury's out as to whether or not these verses are uh, genuine. But based on historical and archaeological evidence, it might help to know more about this pool itself. A lot of times we approach something without having uh, enough of a background. So let me tell you about this pool. Based on evidence, the pool was almost certainly a healing center called an Asclepion after the Greco-Roman god Asclepius. Over 300 are known to have existed. I had to write that all week, over and over again. Asclepion, Asclepius, Asclepiae. And uh, I, I, I like it. Asclepius. It sounds like you're actually saying something, you know, like, hey, do you know the Greek language? Asclepius. In mythology, Asclepius was the son of the god Apollo and a mortal woman named Coronis. Call him Dr. Demigod because he was taught healing arts by none other than Chiron, the centaur. You already knew that, I'm sure. One Jewish source I consulted said, the god's mythical daughters included the goddess Hygieia and Panacea. We can hear in their Greek names our modern words for hygiene and panacea, concepts associated today with medicine and health. Asclepius was the son of the union of a god and a mortal woman. He could heal people and he could raise the dead. That was the mythology. And so therefore we see him as a satanic, a satanic counterfeit to Jesus. Second century apologist Justin Martyr writes, when the devil brings forward Asclepius as the raiser of the dead and healer of all diseases, may I not say that in this matter likewise he has imitated the prophecies about Christ. And so if you're in the first century, a little bit later on, and a Christian comes up to you, you're a non-believer, a Christian shares about Jesus Christ, how he uh, raised from the dead and raises the dead and gives new life, it would ring a bell in your head that, well, this is Asclepius. He does the same thing, and so you're just offering another mythology. And who knows how many thousands or hundreds of thousands of people were turned away from Christ by this counterfeit uh, that the devil has. You know, the devil, he's, he's devious and smart. And he's always thinking of strategies and ways to counterfeit the gospel. Uh, and, and so that's what was going on with Asclepius. And so this was an Asclepion. It was a healing center. Who stirred the water? Well, again, we're not told. And we don't know if it was a who or a what. We do know from accounts that the waters of Bethesda stirred when a priest of Asclepius would open the underground pipes to refill it. Others proposed that it was a hot spring that would bubble up every so often, like, you know, Old Faithful or something like that. But there's no evidence existing that the water was hot or that it was a hot spring. Angel is the translation of the word messenger. It need not refer to a heavenly angel or to a supernatural creature. Maybe it was simply referring to a priest who opened the, uh, you know, the, the water to get more in there. Who knows? The real question is, did genuine healing occur? I can only say that the sick who went there believed the stories and they were not dissuaded even if no one was healed. Four million people visit Fatima annually because they believe the Virgin Mary appeared to three children there in 1917. The Roman Catholic Church reports an occasional miracle at Fatima as well as at the eight other sites where Mary is believed to have appeared. Only a few, maybe you were healed, 
yet people continue to flock to those sites. So multiplied millions upon millions of people have visited these nine sites. And every now and then there's the report of what might be a healing. And yet year after year, people continue to flock there believing something is going to happen. We don't know either how often the water was stirred. If it was from the activity of the priest, it could have been often, but it might have been weeks or months or more between the stirrings. It might have been a very rare event, hardly ever happening. Medicine was ineffective at best. The chronically ill in Bible times were clinging to any hope. Uh, These were mostly beggars because of their sickness, and uh, any hope that there was that they might be healed or helped, they might as well go there. Verse 5, now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. I have to think that in those nearly four decades of infirmity, he had sought other healings. I've known sick people who become healing chasers going to meetings and crusades. They'll try almost anything. Uh, We encountered more than one person on our trips uh, back and forth from the Philippines in the 80s who were going there for psychic surgery. It's in, it's in, so you're laying, you know, the sick person is laying, uh, you know, on a mat or something, and there's all kinds of weird mumbo jumbo going on, and then the healer sticks his hand. It appears that he sticks his hand into their abdomen, pierces their abdomen, and sticks it in there, and then fishes around and pulls out what turn out to be chicken guts uh, and stuff. But they believe that it's whatever was troubling them, and and they get a psychosomatic healing from it, maybe, and stuff, and and. Nothing we could do to talk to people about Jesus would dissuade them from going. And we'd say, oh, there's a real healer in G. And yeah, well, yeah, well, we'll maybe try him after we get chicken guts pulled out of us or something. But, and so this, this, this goes on. People will try almost anything. It can be hard, believe me, I know, to resign yourself to an infirmity without resigning yourself to despair. The chase for the cure can keep you occupied. I think it's better to take the approach of the Apostle Paul. He resigned himself to his thorn in the flesh, but he said he took pleasure in it and he boasted of it. Adversity doesn't necessitate despair. We can have the joy of the Lord in any affliction. It seems kind of weird if somebody comes to you and says, hey, I have this disease. Praise the Lord. Really? Sure. That's what Paul did. Now, he sought healing. He asked the Lord three times to take it from him. Nobody really knows what that means, the three times. Perhaps it was three times in one day because the Jews had a habit of praying three times a day and Paul would do certain Jewish things like that. But at any rate, he prayed and the Lord said, yeah, no, you're going to stay sick with this thorn of the flesh, this messenger of Satan to buffet you because of your uh, many uh, you know, revelations. And Paul said, all right, then it's on. You know, I'm going to be excited about it. And so, you know, the Christian life, it's a very different life. It approaches the world in a very different way. Now, if you come to me and tell me you're sick, I'm not excited immediately. I want to pray for your healing. But if you remain sick, then praise the Lord in it. Boast in it. Rejoice in it. That's the age in which we live. And so, again, this morning when we talk about God's commands being his enablings, we're not saying you can do whatever you want to do. We're not saying that if you're sick, you can just command yourself to be well. We're saying that what you read in the Bible... When God tells you to do something, you can do that because he's enabled you to do it. So let's get into verse 6 again. When John saw him lying there, or Jesus rather, saw him lying there, 
and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? Lying there, paralyzed, he had no hope of getting to the water first. I guess he hadn't worked out that part of his plan yet. He'd gotten as far as the pool of Bethesda, and he was laying there paralyzed. There's no way he would ever get into the pool. Maybe he was hoping that you know, there would be a particularly merciful day where more people would be healed who were in the proximity of the pool. We don't know. But it does show how desperate this individual was. Do you want to be made well? Interestingly, the word for well is hygias. Earlier I mentioned that one of the daughters of Asclepius was hygia, and that is where we get our word hygiene. And so the use of this particular word in this setting gives us additional credibility to the assertion that the pool was in fact an Asclepion. Seems obvious that an infirm man at a healing center wanted to be made well. Think of it like this. Sometimes non-believers come to church looking for the Lord, but when you ask them to receive Christ, they don't want to. In a sense, you're saying, hey, would you be made well? And they say, no, not today. Not right now. Uh, well, you're here where you can find spiritual help and health and joy. That's okay. I'm going to wait. Uh, not everybody gets saved. And it's, a, it's similar. So you think, well, who wouldn't want to be healed? Well, if you're a Christian, you have to think, who wouldn't want to be saved? And know that you're going to heaven and have the assurance of your salvation. Uh, and, you know, know the end before it comes. I've counseled couples over the years who don't really want their marriage to be made well. They offer lame excuses. They act as if the living water of God, the Holy Spirit, is unattainable for them. Their spouse has crippled them in some way, and they can't get to God's resource. And so they want out so they can start over again. In a sense, you're asking them, do you want to be made well? And they're saying no. No, I, I won't believe that God can touch our lives and make things well. So the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Public pools always have posted rules, right? No running, no diving, supervise your kids. My favorite, toddlers must wear swim-proof diapers. I've had kids with swim-proof diapers. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. We destroyed a Coco's one time in Southern California. Coco's was a restaurant chain. Who remembers Coco's? Anybody? Restaurant chain? Whew! Man, that was rough. I, I think they had to condemn that place after we were done. But back to pools. They may as well just have a sign that says, if you haven't thrown up yet at the smell of the chlorine... There's way too much bacteria here from toddlers going commando. I mean, that's just the way it is. And so, God bless you if you go to the public pool. Uh, find a friend who has a backyard pool. I mean, really. Band-aids floating by, all kinds of fun. I wonder how filthy the water was in the pool of Bethesda. Now, you're thinking, I mentioned that it was the size of two Olympic pools, and you're thinking crystal clear water. Valley Pool didn't go there. You know, uh, it, this is just some kind of, it, it, some of the water came from a cistern, they think, which was just a big, you know, 
uh, rock cut out where rainwater gathered and stuff like that. And so this water was kind of dirty. I think you might get a worse sickness from the water. You'd be, you know, paralyzed and with dysentery at the same time, you know. So, I mean, this was rough. Are tourists still kissing the Blarney Stone in this age of COVID? Now, don't, I don't want to know, but I'm going to ask you this. If you've kissed the Blarney Stone, I just, I feel like I need to share this part of my research. Some of you know what I'm going to say. According to many travel blogs, and I quote, the Blarney Stone was once the deflector stone at the bottom of a toilet. It's like the Irish revenge. So, get out your stuff and start, you know, anyway. What a pitiable sight it must have been to see multitudes of sick, lame, blind, and infirm beggars crawling or stumbling, tripping over and stomping upon one another just to reach this water, probably not to be healed. Do you see the world of non-believers in terms like that? Because Jesus does. It's a, it's a symbol, really, of that. And he's still asking unbelievers, do you want to be made well? He does it through you and I and through the church, his temple on earth. Jesus said to him, verse 8, rise, take up your bed, and walk. To quote the church father, Vizzini, inconceivable. Jesus commands the impossible. It may sound mystical, but once you realize the Christian life is impossible, it becomes possible. When you resign yourself to, I can't love my wife the way Christ loved the church, but God says I can, so I can. And then you begin as Lewis, C.S. Lewis said, you, you begin to do it and you grow in it. It's not that the Lord says, love your wife the way Christ loved the church, and then you say, okay, I'll do that after my 35-week certified session of love, you know, seminars or something like that. You, you can do it. You can do it right now. You won't do it as well as you hopefully will do it 10 years from now, but you can do what God commands you to do. You're capable of doing the impossible made possible. We're always talking about this here, about God's word being his enabling. If he commands you to do something, you better believe it's something you can do. You parents, do you uh, tell your kids to do things that are impossible and, and then threaten to discipline them for it? Well, maybe you do, but you're not supposed to. <laughs> That's the idea. God, he, God would not tell you to do something you can't do. Now, you don't do it in your strength, never. It's all him enabling you in your weakness. And I can think of no better example of this than the infirm man by the pool of Bethesda. So if you're thinking, what, what do you mean, do the impossible? Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed, and walk. These three things are not steps or a formula. They're more like principles that shed light on God's enabling. Rise. Everything in the Christian life depends upon the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He's the first fruits of all those who follow in his resurrection. Because he rose and we're in him, the Bible speaks of us as already spiritually risen from the dead. That means we can tap into resurrection power. Among lots of other things, it means we are enabled to rise above any circumstance. The resurrection eliminates lame excuses. Take up your bed. This infirm man was done with the pool of Bethesda. He would not ever be there again. He had an entirely new way of life. 
When a person is saved, they enter a new life with its new way of living. It springs forth from within. It is a byproduct of being saved. Your motivations are different. You have an appetite for spiritual things. Habits and addictions of your flesh are taken away. You are a new creation. If you were saved later in life, it's easy for you to understand this because you, you really literally experience becoming a new person. Old things passed away and all things became new. And then Jesus says, walk. Forget this man's infirmity. What about atrophy? He hadn't moved for 38 years. Nevertheless, he immediately was restored and could walk and could carry his bed. And so always think of Jesus' healings as full and final immediately. Uh, not, he didn't have to go to physical therapy. He, no one had to help him up or you know, pull him out of his wheelchair or whatever. He, he was made whole. By far the most common phrase Christians use is some variant of walk with the Lord. When born again, your dead human spirit comes alive. God, the Holy Spirit, comes within. You experience fellowship, communion, relationship with the living God. God is in you and with you and upon you. It's like taking a walk with God. Now, the part we play in all this is a decision to believe and thereby obey. Believing is not work. It's all grace. In Romans 4, 5, Paul said, To him who does not work but believes, who believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. I like that phrase in that verse. It says, you don't work, but you believe. In other words, to believe God is not a work. It's not a contribution. It isn't that God does a little bit and I do a little bit and together we're able to accomplish something. God does everything and I just need to believe it. And so, you know, these household verses that I, I quoted at the beginning, I need to believe that God tells me I can do that and then walk as if I can. Verse 9, and immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked, and that day was the Sabbath. Consulting all four Gospels, Jesus performed healing on the Sabbath a total of five times. He took the initiative each of those five times, meaning he wanted to have discussions with the religious leaders about the Sabbath and show them, uh, you know, that they were wrong. Verse 10, the Jews therefore said to him, who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Can we please agree to quit saying, He threw me under the bus? I, I, that's run its course, okay? I, I don't want to hear that anymore. Commentators say that this now healed man threw Jesus under the cart, we would say, I guess. All he did, however, was answer their question. And, and respectfully. There are few rules in Scripture for keeping the Sabbath. I mean, there's a ton of rules, but very few of them are in God's Word. We read in Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord. You shall not do any work. Elsewhere, Jews were told not to kindle a fire and not to carry a burden through the gates of Jerusalem. But if you uh, go home later and you go through all the references to Sabbath in the Old Testament, you're not going to find much more than that in terms of what you cannot or can do. The Jewish leaders wanted to codify exactly what constituted work. 
And so they got into things like if you are a tailor, it's work if you carry a sewing needle. And so you had to be careful that you divested yourself of all sewing needles by the time the Sabbath came or else you were working on the Sabbath. Didn't matter if you were sewing anything, but you had the tool of your trade and so you were in trouble. Uh, They came up with 39 categories and categories within categories about what constituted work. Their rules are ridiculously complex and convoluted. They come down to modern times where I've talked to you before about appliances that turn themselves on and off during the Sabbath. Sabbath ovens, Sabbath refrigerators, uh, so that you don't have to kindle a fire, but your, your oven does it by itself. Believers in the church age have no obligation whatsoever to keep the Sabbath. We'll talk a lot more about this in subsequent weeks. In the book of Acts, a church council was convened to discuss what was required of non-Jews. People were getting saved. Gentiles were getting saved. Some Jewish people were saying they can't really be saved unless they also keep parts of the law of Moses. So Paul the Apostle uh, forced their hand. They had a council where they all met to discuss this. No requirement or even a suggestion to observe Sabbaths was said to be necessary for non-Jews. Or for Jews, for that matter. The Sabbath is fulfilled in Jesus. And so there's no reason to keep or observe a weekly Sabbath. And we see how horribly wrong that always goes when you start making rules. Here they were trying to uh, kill a man for breaking their man-made tradition. Verse 12, then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. His heavenly father didn't tell Jesus to heal everyone, just this one guy. It might have, it was like a surgical strike. Jesus found him. Hey, do you want to be healed? Get up. And he left. And you think, well, that seems kind of weird. Why didn't he heal some more people? Can you imagine the scene? If all of a sudden this guy said, hey, I'm healed. Jesus healed me. You're surrounded by multitudes, it says, of sick, infirm, blind, deaf, paralyzed people who are all going to converge on you all at once. It's, it's like a nightmarish horror show, right? It's like all of a sudden there's like, ah, ah, armless, legless, blind people are coming at you. in multi- I don't mean to make, it's not funny. I mean, this is a serious thing. And so Jesus got in and got out, and uh, it accomplished the purpose that his father had for him that day. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, hey, you've been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. There are plenty of examples and explanations in the Bible that indicate suffering and sickness are not God punishing you for sin. Job is the quintessential example that the righteous suffer. However, God can punish sin. We conclude from Jesus' warning that the healed man had been made infirm as a direct result of his sin. D.A. Carson writes, The two clauses, stop sinning and something worse may happen to you, cannot be interpreted independently. They are tied together. The meaning is, stop sinning lest something worse happen to you. The unavoidable implication is that the bad thing that had already happened to him was occasioned by sin, which the person must not repeat. Should we ever sin so that grace would abound? Perish the thought. 
but we need to continue to emphasize grace. Uh, we, it's hard to be gracious. Have you ever noticed that? It's not easy for God, but it's hard for us because we always think people are getting away with something or that they deserve to be punished or that they need to do some penance or, penance, or they need to prove themselves. And it's hard to understand that Jesus' death on the cross has taken care of all that and that we should extend grace. Can we be too gracious? I don't know about if I would put it that way. We can sometimes err on the side of grace and believe something that um, you know is not yet true in a person's life, but I'd rather err on the side of grace. Now, we don't do it stupidly. I don't know why I'm going to bring this up, but I think I will. Oh, it's a serious thing. Uh, you'll read lots of stories over the years of such and such pedophile was in a church and they made him the head of the children's ministry or he was a Sunday school teacher or that kind of thing. And they'll interview the pastor who will say, well, you know, Jesus forgives and we forgive and stuff. And I say, and you're stupid uh, because, you know, you, you can forgive someone and have fellowship someone and, and yet not put them in the way of temptation. You know, I mean, it doesn't mean... It doesn't mean that God's grace extends to the point of stupidity. Uh, and so it, but it's tough. I mean, it's a tough one. We would rather err on the side of grace, but there's some things that are just hard and fast, and that's one of them. And so, But be gracious. Learn to be more gracious to people as, as God is gracious to you. Uh, you've sinned 30 or 40 times just listening to me this morning probably, right? I bring that out in people and stuff, and, and yet God loves you. The man departed, told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Was he an ungrateful snitch? Well, no, Jesus came to him and found him out. And as we see in the Gospels, Jesus wants the religious leaders to know that it's him. He wants to have these talks with them. Charles Spurgeon argues that this man was saved. That's good enough for me. Verse 16, for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. A guy 38 years infirm picks up his bed and walks away. And rather than look at that awestruck with your jaw dropped, they said, we're going to kill the guy who did this because today is the Sabbath day and we consider this work. By the way, there's an argument as to whether it's work or not. Is it really work if you've been healed to carry your bed out of an Asclepion? I like that, Asclepius. It's not. On another occasion, Jesus commanded a man with a withered hand, stretch out your hand. It's the same kind of thing. It's, it's, the, it's the example uh, you know, of, of being able and able to do what God commands. It inspired hymn writer Albert Benjamin Simpson to write this, when Christ of old with healing power went forth through all the suffering land, his word so oft was wont to be, stretch forth thy hand, stretch forth thy hand. And though the palsied arm might shrink and tremble at the strange command, the healing touch was only felt while stretching forth the withered hand. O suffering one, stretch forth your hand. Upon his promise, take your stand. At his command, stretch forth your hand, and Christ shall make you whole. Read the Bible believing that you are enabled to do what it tells you to do.